Welcome to the Scale Up Your Business podcast. In this podcast, we talk about what it takes to go from startup to scale up and beyond. How to significantly grow your business, create freedom, build wealth, and live life on your terms. Featuring some very special guests and experts to give you advice and direction on your journey. And now, introducing your host, entrepreneur, investor, and scale-up specialist, Nick Bradley. Hi, everyone. It's Nick Bradley here, and welcome to this week's episode of Scale Up Your Business. So today, I am delighted to have on the show someone that is a heap of fun, and that person is Frank McKinney. Now, Frank is self-described as a modern-day Renaissance man. He's a real estate artist, a seven-times international best-selling author, uh, a philanthrocapitalist, which we'll get into kind of what that is, the definition. He's also an actor, an aspirational speaker, and an ultra marathoner. So this guy has run the Badwater Ultra Marathon, one of the things that I have on my bucket list multiple times. And we connected on Clubhouse, I think partly because of the the sort of endurance sport passion that we both had. But when I, I sort of looked into Frank a little bit more, I found out how amazing he is as a businessman, an entrepreneur. What he actually does is builds these amazing uh, oceanfront homes in Florida where the average selling price is $14 million. And you've got to go to his website. It's frank-mckinney.com and you can see how amazing some of these homes are. But the thing that I didn't know about Frank, but I have learnt about since, is the foundation that he has in Haiti. Now it's called The Caring House Project and I'll just read this to you. This is kind of what it's about, the mission statement. It said, in 2021 and beyond, The Caring House Project Foundation shall create projects based upon self-sufficiency by providing housing, food, water, medical support and opportunity for the desperately poor and homeless from around the world, particularly in Haiti. So it's a huge undertaking what he's doing. He's literally building concrete homes for people who have literally lived in mud shacks. And as we release this episode, it's going to be early May 2021, uh, there has just been an event on Clubhouse, which was called the Help Build a Clubhouse, Haiti House. Um, And uh, there's been money raised for the project. I've donated some money to the project. I think it's an amazing cause. And if you're interested in donating as well, once you listen to this amazing conversation with Frank McKinney, then again, you can go to his website, which is frank-mckinney.com and have a look at the Caring House project there and you'll be able to make a donation. So as I said, it's a fun interview. It's a colorful interview. We do this live on podcast like I've been doing of late and I just had a heap of fun and I know you're going to get a heap out of it too. So welcome to Scale Up Your Business, Frank McKinney. Hi everybody, this is Nick Bradley and welcome to another episode of Scale Up Your Business. This is another Chat with Titans episode, which means that it's being run live in Clubhouse in front of a live audience. Uh, It means that we can kind of get into a bit of fun with the various guests that I like to have on the show. And I'm delighted today to have Frank McKinney. Now, Frank, God, you know, you do so many different things, Frank. (laughs) 
<laughs> it's, it's kind of, you, you are one of the more difficult people I think that I've had on the show to do an intro for because you build some of the most amazing or you're involved in some of the most amazing real estate I've ever seen. You are a best-selling author. You're a philanthrocapitalist, which we're going to get into. <laughs> You've got uh, really colorful dress sense and hair, hair um, uh, what do you call it, characteristics. <laughs> and the thing that I really want to talk about is you're a fellow ultra marathon runner like myself. Uh, so we're going to kind of get into things like grit and mindset today. So welcome to the show. Yeah, I guess you're, I, am, I would be considered your first functioning multiple personality disorder guest that you've ever had. That's a polite thing to say. I, I wasn't going to go there. <laughs> functioning, not, not dysfunctioning. But no, I, I, I'm, I'm honored. Listen, you and I did meet on Clubhouse, and there's some other people up on the stage. Brad, uh, I know it's, this is more of an interview type thing, but, man, what a platform. Some of the people I have met and had a chance to you know, interact with, the thing that attracted me to you you know, isn't the houses I build on speculation, isn't the, you know, seven books and six, six different genres. It's not even the stuff we do over in Haiti, which I hope we do get a chance to talk about philanthrocapitalism and its definition, but it's ultra marathoning, which it's a cult of a sport. It's a very, it's a growing sport, but those who run a hundred miles uh, at a time nonstop, it's a very small class of people. So I'm excited to talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. We, we're going to cover all of it today. I'm going to be um, super precise with my questions and our, and our conversation. The way I like to do this is a chat, right? You know, like we've, we've shared some stages together on Clubhouse before and it's pretty informal, but let's kick off. I, I would say you're probably the most colorful person <laughs> that I've had on the podcast. And I don't mean, you know, just because of um, the cool hairstyles and that. I think, you know, looking at the stuff that you do, and I've heard you talk before about the way that you've made certain choices in your business and your life, I, I, they sort of resonated with me when I heard those. So so just to kick off, um, you know, these, let's talk about the kind of business side and then we'll get into everything else. But in terms of this real estate artistry, as you call it, just describe for the audience um, what you do here, because I'm looking at pictures of some of the houses that you've been involved in, and I've got to say I want one. Um, so just give us the backstory of how you got into that space. Yeah, so for those who want to follow along with Nick, you can just go to my website, frank-mckinney.com, and click on some of the houses that we've done. My, my website, by the way, has been called Disney on a Desktop because it's so entertaining. You don't have to leave your desk to be you know, entertained. What I have done for a living for the last, oh, 25 years, I wanted to be – a painter. I wanted to be a sculptor, a singer, or play an instrument, but I couldn't. And I had this this artistry, uh, this artist mindset. But where to to find the outlet for that? I moved to Florida with a fifty dollar bill and a one way plane ticket uh, from Indiana when I was eighteen. Didn't have the benefit of pursuing a formal education. And when I landed in Florida, Nick, uh, it was and 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 I'm, some of the people who are are listening to this will relate to a show that was on TV called Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. It was a voyeuristic look inside the wealthy and how they live. And I came from a farm in Indiana, landed in Palm Beach. I was a maintenance worker for a while. Then I became a tennis pro, teaching tennis pro. And I taught very wealthy people how to hit a better forehand and a backhand. And I was enamored with, at the time, young, impressionable. I was very consumeristic, very materialistic. How did you get to live this lifestyle? I would ask or want to ask my tennis students. Problem was they were on the other side of the net. So I purposely wore them down after 45 minutes of an hour-long tennis lesson that they paid me for, sat them down, brought them a towel and a cold drink, and said, sir, let's say Brad. I taught Brad. I say, Brad, how'd you get here? And the answer I heard more than once was real estate. They might have been a doctor, lawyer, or inventor, 
but they're at nine to five, but, and nobody's born a real estate investor, their discretionary income left over after paying bills invested in real estate. It was what allowed them to live this fantastic lifestyle. And I was teaching at some of the most affluent tennis clubs in Palm beach at the time. This is back in the mid to late eighties. So I, I said, that's what I got to be. I want to be, I want to invest in real estate. And I earned my PhD in entrepreneurship and my master's in real estate on the tennis court, picking the brains of the ultra wealthy over a two year span. I bought my first fixer upper back in the late eighties for 34 grand, flipped it and made a $7,000 profit. But on that first deal, Nick, I, if I look at, look way back as almost a postmortem at that time of my year, my, my life, I became a real estate artist where I put three coats of paint on the wall instead of two. And I put $20 yard carpet instead of 10. And I, I didn't just patch the roof. I, I put on a new roof and I really made it, these houses, the nicest little, they were crack houses at the time, like the nicest little crack houses on the block. And I, the first lesson that I learned that I would, I'd like to share is I sacrificed bottom line for reputation. I wasn't making as much as I could on these houses because I wanted to build my reputation. And it, and it worked. So I, for, for five years, I didn't do a house more, worth more than $100,000. And then I jumped to a $2.2 million house, all on speculation, by the way. I don't build for you know couples. I'm not a custom builder. Like Van Gogh, Renoir, Monet, I build these houses. I don't paint them. I build them in three dimension and put a for sale sign in the yard. And, and so some of the houses that you've seen on my website, although I'm not an architect, I design them. I design them from the tree house that I'm coming to you from today. My wife furnishes them. You know, we we find the deals, we find the raw land, we market them, and we take the checks to the bank. And I, and to date, we've done nearly I think 43, 44 direct oceanfront homes on speculation with an average selling price of around 14 million dollars. Okay, let me just jump in here. I mean, the the houses are spectacular, and and I would be amiss to say that part of having you on here is I want to buy one of these from you at some point. <laughs> So, and it's funny that um, a, a lot of these based, are they all based in Florida? They are all based in Florida. And by the way, you know, don't be, there's a method to the madness. Even my mom says, you know, she calls me Mickey. Mickey, why don't you just keep your hair the regular length and the regular color and wear normal clothes? This part of the branding, you know, and, and this is the way I kind of, I, I would approach my life in high school. And I realized don't co-opt, don't compromise, don't sell out for anyone, anything or any time. And, and so it, at, at first, I remember my, my first high end, few, few, first few high end transactions, Nick, I'd walk in and they'd say, well, we're waiting for Frank McKinney. You must be the pool boy or you're the landscaper. And, and, and I said, no, I'm, I'm Frank. And, and that for that few first few seconds, while their jaw would kind of drop to the ground thinking there's something wrong with this picture, that's all I needed to start to make my presentation to sell myself for it first. Because remember, personal branding is the art of amplifying your essence first to the state where your customers become intoxicated with you first, then your product or service. So I, I had that, that momentary lapse, like the synapses of the brain just wasn't putting something together with these, these buyers. And, and from that point forward, those houses that you see, uh, they became almost commissioned paintings only in three dimension. And how did you, to jump back a step for something you said that, that sort of struck me, you went from, and I forget the exact figure you said, but it was something like low hundreds of thousands to millions, right? And, and I just want to understand that change. You know, was it intentional okay. or was it opportunistic? And, and how did you do that? It was very intentional. Listen, I'm a businessman first and an artist a distant second. So the intentional part of, of the decision was 
since the Roman era, the first time home buyer and the ultra wealthy have been recession proof. They have been around, that class of buyer has been around forever. So in Malcolm Gladwell's book, Blink, he talks about to become an expert at anything, we must spend 10,000 hours. Now, I hadn't read that book you know, back then. It wasn't even out back then when I was doing my first houses. But I did it. I read that book a few summers ago, and I realized, oh, oh my goodness, 10,000 hours is five years. And I hadn't done a house worth more than 100 grand for, for the first five years of my career. I became an expert at the craft of real estate. Now, there was a zero missing from my sales prices, right? I was selling $100,000 houses, not million-dollar houses. And I felt confident enough that I knew enough about the marketplace. I had become an expert. Yes, it was at a lower price point. But to take the risk associated with jumping from not doing a house worth more than hundred grand to a $2.2 million house. And, and you, know, you know what helped me take that risk was driving by an oceanfront home that had two weeks of uncollected newspapers out front, two months of uncut grass, broken windows, you know, tilting screens, front doors falling off. Nick, it looked like one of the crack houses I was doing in a bad part of town, only this was on the ocean. And in Palm Beach County, there's only 156 direct oceanfront properties. And I thought, my goodness, I, I can do what I was doing to the $100,000 houses to this house, only at adding a, a zero and taking it to a different level. And, and that's what that's why I chose not to, to, to you know, it's really that that in, in the United States, the $500,000 to, you know, right now about a million, even less, $300,000 to a million three, let's say. That segment of the real estate marketplace is is very subject to uh, economic swings and fluctuations and interest rate rises and falls. The ultra wealthy, if they want a house in the south of France, the Italian Riviera, Malibu, Beverly Hills, Bel Air, Hawaii, or Palm Beach, they have a limited supply of choices. And I wanted to be the one to provide them with that and do it as this artist. Like most of the houses that you'll see on there, I would travel to Europe to study architecture. To France when we were doing a French design. I went to Bali, Tahiti, and Hawaii when I did this Balinesian style. And, uh, and, and so that's why I jumped. I thought, you know what? I'm tired of doing 20 houses a year. We were making 25 grand a house. It was good. I mean, the money was good. But I wasn't the, art, the, art, the artist side nor the business side of the mind. Left brain, right brain wasn't being challenged. And that's why we jumped from, from 100,000 to 2 million. And then, Nick, we went from 2 to 4, 4 to 8. And the most expensive house I ever did was a $50 million house that had 32 rooms, 14 bedrooms, 16 bathrooms, and an 18-car garage. You make it sound effortless, <laughs> right? And so what I'm trying to unpack here, and I, do, I like to get into kind of people's psychology, and we'll get in, you know, go straight into um, ultramarathon running very quickly as well. But that shift, where did the belief come? You know, did you always have that, that sort of, you know, I'm going to make this? Because it sounds to me like you, you saw an opportunity, you made the choice, you took action, it happens. Is, is that the case or was there more behind that? Well, yeah, I mean, you, you make, like you just said, it makes it sound so easy. It was my overnight success took 25 years. I mean, it was, it was something where I, I did have the belief that I had the eye and I had this kind of subliminal sense of what the ultra wealthy wanted before they, before they knew they wanted it. And, and even back in the first house, like it wasn't a flashy, you know, oceanfront brand new mansion. It was a renovated house that was built in the 1930s that I chose not to tear down. And renovate. So, you know, I'll, always wanting to, like these people that buy my houses, man, they, they have seen stuff that you and I wish, I don't care how wealthy, you know, anybody's been in any of the clubhouse rooms I've been on, 
very few people live the lifestyle that I sell to my clients and the way that they live. So knowing what they want before they know they want it and going into the money rooms of the house, which by the way, doesn't matter the price of the house, hundred thousand or, you know, 50 million, it's the kitchen, the master bath and master bedroom and taking these enormous chances with architectural and, and, um, amenity choices and having somebody walk in the door on a Tuesday. And this is how it goes. They walk in the door on a Tuesday and they'll be sleeping there by Friday night. So the, the, the art of, of, of selling and opening that impulse window really is what I'm doing. These people don't need another house. I need to move them from, do I really need another house to, I desire Frank's house. And I've gotten really, really good at it as evidenced by the average time on market for one of my houses over that 25 year span, over those 44 houses on the ocean, it's only 54 and a half days, which if you're in real estate, that's extremely short period of time. Got it. Okay. So how, let's just unpack that a little bit while we're here. How do you do that? So, so what is it that in terms of your style, your approach? I mean, the houses themselves, are, as I said, spectacular, but they're, what, what's, what's, what, what's the approach that you take around that? Okay. All right. So we, we, I mean, if we had a whole day on this, the, my, the marketing chapters in my books are the longest chapters because you can make up for a lot of mistakes, a lot of sins if you overpay for a property, if you overimprove it. But man, oh man, you go to some of my unveilings. My unveilings belong in Vegas or on a back lot in Broadway. They're very theatrical. Uh, the last one I did, I re, you can go to the, the website. I repelled out of a helicopter down onto the roof while this fire, this massive pyrotechnic show went on. There again, method to the madness. I drive people to my properties through this anticipation. Over it takes me a year, a year and a half to build them. I've got stationary progress cameras. I've got cameras that walk through the house while it's under construction. I'll, uh, every month, I take a picture from a helicopter from the same when I a drone from the same same spot, so they can see the progress. I build this anticipation almost as if, almost as if. Van Gogh, Renoir, Monet were in their studio allowing people to peer through the window while they're painting their masterpiece. It ain't going to be for sale until it's done. And you can't see it until it's done, which, by the way, the ultra-wealthy want what they can't have. So I actually take it away from them be right before we're, we're ready to put it on the market. And then we have these, these very theatrical grand unveilings, VIPs, uh, multi-million dollar real estate brokers, like the top producers – show up media obviously shows up so i get a lot of you know a ton of free coverage for my unveilings which just further enhances the brand and and there's a i'm not gonna say there's a, a waiting list or a line but they sell very very quickly and 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 if, if that that marketing you know that personal branding where people are excited to see okay what's frank's next design because i never do the same house twice matter of fact my buyers taught me this that i have to destroy i've had to destroy architectural plans to ensure that the house they just bought was never duplicated. Okay, got it. All righty, let's let's go into the 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 fun part. <laughs> so, how does someone who does these amazing, let's call it experiences around real estate, because it's certainly more than just when I'm getting building a place, right? How do you get into ultra running? So, where's the join here? Because <laughs> because I'm an ultra runner, we can talk all about this all day. But how did how did that come into your world? There's a significant connection between the sport of ultramarathoning and what I do for a living. And it starts with what I refer to as the three I's, insurmountable, incomprehensible, and impossible. So what I do for a living on speculation, building, you know, a, let's just say an average $15 million house without a buyer, to most people 
if they step up next to me and they're they're next to me at a urinal, they're going to say, wow, you've got big balls. I can't believe that's what you do for a living. That's insurmountable, incomprehensible, and impossible. So, so being friendly with that part of life, taking on the insurmountable, the incomprehensible, the impossible, I stumbled, literally stumbled across the sport of ultramarathoning. Nick, I wasn't a marathoner. I wasn't even a half marathon. I was a fast twitch muscle tennis pro guy. And I made the, I won't call it a mistake. I, I, I had the good fortune of booking a vacation in Death Valley in 2004 during the Badwater Ultramarathon, which according to National Geographic is the toughest foot race in the world. It runs across Death Valley in July in 125 degree heat for 135 miles nonstop. I didn't know any of that. I just booked a vacation because I wanted to be in the hottest place in the world. And by the way, Death Valley, California is the hottest place on the planet. 134 degrees is a record high temperature. So I booked this vacation. I go out for a little six-mile fast twitch 40-minute run. I almost die. I literally I, – I, I, my eyes had rolled back in my head. I suffered heat exhaustion by mile four. I start to revive myself at the little general store by buying Gatorade and water and bananas. And the and the clerk from behind the counter says, you better get back out there. You're in last place. I look at him. I say, excuse me, sir. I know I look like I'm you know, a little delusional here because I just had a heat stroke or heat exhaustion. Why are you yelling at me to get back out there? What are you talking about? And he said, the Badwater Ultramarathon, the last runner passed here an hour ago. And if you don't hurry up, you're going to miss the cutoff. He had mistaken me for a runner in the, in the race because of the way I looked. This I didn't is so know funny. <laughs> This yes. is classic. It's classic. And and then and then and then so so just take yourself back to when you were a kid and you had your favorite cartoon that you watched a hundred times. I asked him one more time, what are you talking about? And he said, Oh, the Badwater Ultramarathon starts at the lowest place point in the Western Hemisphere at 280 feet below sea level, runs across three mountain ranges, and finishes nine thousand feet up the third mountain range two days later. You can go down to the to the, the next store or go down to the uh, ranger station and buy a video called Running on the Sun. It was a documentary made on the race in 1999. I bought that documentary. I watched it like a kid, watches cartoons a hundred times. And I said to myself in 04, I am going to run that race. I hired a coach. That coach got my mind ready because, you know, you can't just run this race. You have to be invited. It's very, very hard to get into. There's only 100 people invited. This year, there's 25 countries represented at the starting line with the 100 invitees. It's a world-class field. Back then, same thing, 100 runners, only it was a little easier to get in. You needed one 100-mile race to, on your resume to get in. And my coach got my mind ready in six weeks to run a 100-mile qualifier. I ran it in under 24 hours. For, when I finished that race, on day one, I was in an ambulance. On day two, I was in a wheelchair. On day three, I was using a walker. Day four, a cane. And finally, on day five, I could walk again. But I had the race done. I had it on my resume. I'm a good writer because I've you know, written a bunch of books, so I knew how to write this application. And lo and behold, Nick, a year to the day, when I went out for that fateful run in 2004, not knowing I was having running during the Badwater Ultramarathon, I was invited to that race, and I finished my first of seven Badwater Ultramarathons in 2005. So because I'm a geek, right, I'm actually looking at all of your statistics <laughs> as we're talking. So I'm looking at the, the Dan Rossi Memorial Ultra, which is the 2004 race, and then 2005 is your first one, right? Um, right. And then a, an outstandingly great performance in 2006. <laughs> I'm looking at all these numbers. Mate, it's incredible. I, I, I just share with you very quickly. I, I kind of got inspired by it. I read um, 
uh, Dean Carnazis, I think, is his book, Ultra Marathon Man. And I was literally on holiday sitting by a beach in Greece. And, and I was, you know, getting quite overweight and I was kind of just, you know, drinking too much and work was pretty full on. And I read this book and thought, man, I've got to go do something different. And then I just, you know, for the next decade, I've just run everything from comrades to a few different hundred mile races here and quite a lot of US races. Never done the bad water. And it's funny, right, when you said that story, because I've seen pictures of people who do it and you're literally wearing like these kind of white suits with people like, you know, your, your, your support team spraying water on you. Is that, is that the reality? Oh, my God. If we devoted the entire interview to this, we could, we could, we, we could do it. Because the, 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 the pain that we endure, we meaning not just the runners but my crew, because there's no aid station. So for you non-runners, imagine 135 miles through the desert, not on sand, but on blacktop pavement that's over 200 degrees. So if you wear the wrong shoes, like back when I first started, they, sh- they used to sell shoes that had gel in them. They don't sell those anymore. The gel would explode out the bottoms because your feet are so hot. I, in the bottom of my shoe, my first few races, if you're, if you're a forester and you're out there putting out forest fires, you have a, what's called a blowover tent. It's one of these silver tents that you put up, and if the fire's coming, you get in it and save your life. I would cut part of that silver out and put it on the bottom of my shoe to retard the heat so my feet wouldn't blister, and that was one of my DNFs, by the way. Is my the bottom of my feet blistered so bad they literally sloughed off? It's like you know they 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 just came off. So so yes, my crew. There's no mile five, let alone mile one thirty five, without my crew because they're hydrating me to the tune of twelve gallons in two days. I must take in three hundred calories based upon my size, an hour. The whole thing is spreadsheeted like a military operation. I have to report not just me, but my 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 pacer reports the color of my urine back to the main van to make sure that I'm not starting to dehydrate. You know, the darker the urine, the more closer you are to becoming dehydrated. So, yeah, man, it, it is, it's a brutal test of, of just this mental strength, especially when you're sleep deprived, Nick, because I don't finish toward the top. I finish toward the back. Like, you got 48 hours to finish. My average finish time of those seven races is 44 hours. So I'm struggling. I'm not a gifted ultramarathoner. I fight for every footfall. But if it, is, if it wasn't for that crew, which is you know, synonymous with the crew in your life, in your business, there, there's, no, there's no making it in five miles. No, and, and just for context, though, that 100-mile that under 24 hours, anytime you can do that, it's a pretty damn decent run. So you were clearly an athlete before this. Maybe not a runner, <laughs> but it's still not bad, mate. Um, what I want to get into, though, Frank – you know, back to back to what you said beforehand, the attraction to this, the attraction, the attraction to hard things, things that, you know, as you said before, people may find impossible if you're looking from the outside in until you actually get into it, you take action. Where did that drive come from? Where did that that ideology, that thinking come from? Uh, you know, that's probably a question for my therapist. I, you know, she, she asked my, my family asked the same thing. You know, why, why, why write? In one instance, I wrote three books uh, at the same time in three different genres at the same time and released them on the same day, right? So that's just incomprehensible, impossible, insurmountable. Uh, The charity I run in Haiti, I mean, it's the poorest country in the world, and yet we've built 28 on our 29th self-sufficient village over in Haiti. So I'm attracted to – well, first of all, bad, I wasn't the first to do bad water, so I thought, oh my God, even though you're not a gifted ultra runner, other people have done this, and, and let me learn what it took for them to do it. Now, some of them are gifted, but 
get the mind right and the money will follow. Get the mind right and the miles will follow. And in my case, I've, I've failed to finish that race five times, by the way. I've finished it seven, but I've DNF five. And in, in three, yeah, probably three, maybe four of those times, uh, my mind failed me. So it's a, it's a really good uh, exercise in, in, in just, just getting that mind right, believing that I can sell a $50 million house on speculation, believing I can run a charity in the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, and believing I can be you know, a best-selling author when I left high school with a 1.8 GPA and no, no formal education. So that, you know what, in everybody listening to your, to your Scale Up Your Business uh, podcast wants to feel alive. And the, the best way to feel alive is to experience extremes, whatever that definition is for you. So my definition of extremes, we've talked about the way we, the houses, the running, the charity, the books. But unless we push and say yes to the risk and no to the fear associated with taking the risk, there's there's no point living to me really i mean you and i and everybody listening to your fantastic podcast we're gonna we're gonna have regrets when we're laying on our deathbed no matter what we do we will have regrets i'd rather regret what i did not what i didn't do so 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 getting past the fear associated with the thought of running 135 miles through the death valley desert was the most important thing i had to do it, it was the thought of it nick it wasn't the actual running once the start gun goes off all that fear goes away and you got to execute it's the same way in business that's that's kind of how i hoped you would answer the question right because for me everything you described seems i wouldn't say it's normal but it's something i resonate massively with because for me i do these things because i find that if i put myself through those challenges the things that i find very difficult overwhelming to some extent before i begin I find personally other challenges that show up in my life, which they show up in everyone's life, I find them easier, significantly easier to comprehend, to attack, to be successful at. So for me, it's almost like training, right? So I don't think about ultra running as, you know, it's just about the event itself. It's what you learn about yourself. It's the growth that you go through um, both physically and most importantly, mentally, which you can then apply to other areas of your life. And and that for me is the big thing. It, it is a big thing, and we, I think we both kind of make it sound more complex than it is. In the end, when I'm out there at mile 96, and I've got 39 more miles to go, I'm in a word raw. I am stripped of everything that everyone on this podcast would think would be important, right? It doesn't matter my social media following. It doesn't matter my bank account. I just want to put one foot in front of the other. And, you know... It's the same with the, the risk we take in business. When you get past all the, uh, you know, like like over googling and over spreadsheeting and overthinking, you get to that raw place in your in your psyche in in your mind that says, "Am I? Do I have what it takes to undertake this financial, physical, spiritual, relational, dietary challenge?" And and, and you know the the the, the rational mind is going to say, "No, you don't." But the subconscious mind that says, "Where are you going to be if you don't pursue it?" Well, you know, I, I've, I've lost money on real estate deals. I've DNF'd in the race. I've had some 80 villages not go so well. I had one book that I poured a year and a half in that didn't sell but like 5,000 copies. So I've had, I've had failures. But, man, I'm not going to sit back and, and, and rock in that rocking chair saying, I wish I would have tried that Badwater race when I could have. What's the – if you think back to the races you've done, 
the events you've done and the training and everything you put into it, what's the gift, the one gift that you can say you've got from all those experiences? Nick, my life has changed so much since that first bad water in 2005. The confidence it gave me to, to, because to, because I, I, you know, back then they gave you 60 hours to finish and, and I, I finished in a little over 48 hours, 48, 49. And, and I remember crying at mile 42 to my wife saying, why am I doing this? You know, I, I'm, I'm very well off. I have plenty of money. I should have my toes in the sand and just kicking back. Why am I doing this? And, and, and she would remind me, you know, you're doing this because it, 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 it's what makes you feel alive. You know, Frank, get back out there and, and finishing that race that, that, Anything that seemed insurmountable, incomprehensible, and impossible that laid itself on my heart, or for you listeners, laid itself on your heart, I now choose to pursue. And if you look at the design, like those houses you're looking at on my website, by the way, are post-Badwater. All all but my first first book, all but my first book are all post-Badwater. So, so I, I give a talk called uh, Conquering Your Life's Badwaters, and we use Badwater as an example, as a metaphor. Not, not many people can run that race, but, but we all have our life's ma- bad waters, you know, the insurmountable, incomprehensible, and impossible things. And, 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 and I, I'm so blessed to have said yes to that opportunity when I was vacationing in Death Valley to this monumental challenge. And I don't know if you were in the room the other day, but we were talking to that sports uh, psychologist that works with the basketball players. And my, my biggest, like, I don't know, yeah, I guess it's a fear. I'm like, my days are numbered. Like, I'm toward the end of my running, my my ultra running career, and that's 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 a scary thought. Like, how am I going to replace that with something constructive versus destructive? Uh, but my to answer your your primary question, that my life has changed so much since saying yes to that insurmountable, incomprehensible, and impossible task. And the proof is in my business, my books, and my charity. Yeah, I love your three eyes. And again, for people listening live here on Clubhouse and for those who'll be listening on the uh, the episode when it goes goes live out there into the world, I think there's so many lessons in that very simple explanation. So that was cool. One last question on this before we go into um, the other stuff you're involved in, Frank. Why Badwater? I mean, I'm looking here at, you know, again, I'm not sure if you've done multiples of other races, but the Badwater seems to jump out more than anything else as opposed to, you know, um, some of the other big races that exist around the world, Western States, all that sort of stuff. So what is it about Badwater specifically? It, it's very simple. And if you're looking at like an ultra, ultra sign up or whatever, it, it's not current. It doesn't have my ra- all my races on there. But Nick, I made the unconscious mistake of having my, other than the qualifying race at Dan Rossi Memorial, which has been defunct for like 15 years, Badwater was my first ultra. Badwater is the toughest foot race in the world, according to National Geographic. I can't get jazzed about anything else. I love, I've never felt more alive out there. I've never felt more in love with my wife out there. I've never felt closer to my crew out there. And as a Christian, I've never felt closer to God out there. I know why a lot of passages in the Bible are written in and or about the desert. The rawness, just that total in touch with my my inner being. I can't I've run other races. I've never found it like I found it at Badwater. And you know, when you've when you've dated Miss America, you know, why would you go to date Miss Tennessee? Right? It's just like there's I'm not <laughs> I got never it. gonna you get it, right? Yeah, I get it. I get it. Once, once you've once you've played in the, what do you call it, the NBA? I'm a basketball fan as well. You know, going and playing in the in the minor leagues is probably not the same. I'm not going to the G League. There's no <laughs> way I'm going to the G League. And, and there you then, go. No. Last 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 point on, on running, just for those who are listening. One mantra you can repeat to yourself that I use in business, in charity, in, in writing my books, and especially on the, on those on those miles on the road. 
relentless forward motion. I have it. I have a sauna here at my house that has a treadmill inside of it because I need to train for the heat. I need to train for assimilating all the fluid that I'm going to take in. I'm going that treadmill in, in 150 degrees. And on the wall in front of me in chalk, it says relentless forward motion. I am not fast. I am not racing. I am there to survive. I'm there to succeed. Isn't that what we all want to do? We want to succeed in business and sport and life and church, whatever. And that mantra, when I'm ready to throw in the towel and quit, just remember that. It, it, my wife has had a simple saying. She, you know, I was ready to quit mile 102 one year. She said, look, the van is 100 yards that way. You can start to walk back toward the van, take off your stuff and quit. Or you can walk 100 yards toward the finish line. You'll be 100 yards closer. Your choice. And I chose to take a right instead of a left. Relentless forward motion. I was walking. I was crawling. I was puking. I was two miles an hour. But I walked toward the finish line instead of moving backwards and quitting. I'm curious how many people here and now listening to this saying, hey, I want to do ultramarathons. <laughs> we can't do a, a hand raise. We possibly can. But it's funny. Um, the, the, the mantra I have, which, which I whenever I get to the hardest part in a race, it's this is what you came for. And, and for me, it's about finding that point. And it's funny, as soon as I get to that point, um, I, I feel massively inspired to take the next step. And I've had some races whereby, you know, I've got to, you know, let's say it's a 100-mile race or a 100K race, I've got to that point and there's a long way to go. But I know that if I can go through that point, um, the other side of it is amazing. And I grow and all the those sort of things. The beauty, the beauty about ultra running is, isn't it, Nick, a metaphor for life. And you experience life. In my case, in 48 hours, if you're running a you know 100 mile or maybe in 24 hours, the ups, the downs, the super highs, the super lows, and what are you going to say to the mirror if you choose to quit? Like the next day is brutal. I've had to pull out of five races. I was depressed as hell. Like, did you really? You know, one one year I had a heart problem. I had to stop, and one year I had real bad blisters. But the other three times were really kind of my mind, and and I I regretted pulling out the next day, looking in the mirror, saying, "My God." Everybody else has got that Badwater belt buckle, which is like the Lombardi trophy or the Larry O'Brien trophy for basketball lovers. And I didn't get mine this year. That's a horrible feeling. Yeah, absolutely. Listen, that was great. We could have probably just talked about that for hours, but I'm conscious everyone's going to go like, seriously, guys, move on. Um, but that was great. I want to talk um, before we finish up about the um, this philanthrocapitalism and specifically your Caring House project um, in Haiti. So first and foremost, when did that become part of you? When did you get involved in that? And, and what was behind that as well? In the late 90s, there was an article that came out. It was on the front page of the local newspaper for selling the most expensive spec house in the history of Palm Beach County. It was a $12 million house at the time. My arms were raised in triumph over my head. There was a picture of the house behind me. I opened the article. It was back when we read newspapers, like real newspapers, not online. And and I wanted to make sure they quoted me right. And my hair was right and the clothes were right. But on the, on the left side of the page was an article about a homeless man that was being fed by a soup kitchen. Uh, out from underneath the overpass. He was living under the bridge. And, and I, I flipped the paper around, like folded it so I wouldn't even see him. Like, I don't want to look at this. I want to look at me. I want to read about me. Something said, turn this damn paper over, read about this individual. And Nick, if I don't put a flat iron in my hair and a bunch of hair care products and don't shave, I could look like I'm homeless real easy. And there but for the grace of God go I. So I read that article, and it was about this soup kitchen that was feeding people, and I was at a really low point in my life. Yes, I had sold the most expensive house in the history of Palm Beach County on spec, but I was depressed. I had lost all the heart in my soul, or all the soul in my heart, and I went to volunteer. I simply – one of my books is titled The Tap, 
and it's it's a it's it's a it's a book it's a spiritual book on a passage from the gospel of luke 1248 that says to whom much is entrusted much is required i had been entrusted with a lot i succeeded at a high level when i wasn't supposed to yet i was feeling so depressed and the reason why i was feeling so down is because i was so full of myself and, and and a consumeristic materialistic approach to life you know how many cars can i put in my garage and clothes in my closet and food in my pantry and and i realized i i had a spiritual highest calling that i needed to go find and and volunteering at that soup kitchen one hour a week was my way of answering the tap and that's why i called the book the tap is when god comes down and calls you to more be it more miles or you know more business more success in my case it was more spiritual enlightenment and and i decided okay I got this thing. Now, just like the running, I'm not going to do this domestically, even though we do take care of homeless people here in the United States. I'm going to go to the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, Haiti, and we're going to build self-sufficient villages. And that's where philanthrocapitalism comes in because I didn't – I don't like – let me back up. I, I'm, I'm okay with entitlement programs, uh, welfare programs. But where it becomes very toxic is when, when that moves from a program to a mentality, entitlement mentality, a, a, a welfare mentality. Well, we have plenty of that in the United States. It sickens me. So when I, go, when I went to Haiti, I thought we are going to take the best of philanthropy, which is a fancy, fancy word for charity. And, it, and to me, charity exacerbates poverty. It does not make it better. Take the best of philanthropy, the best of capitalism, marry the two, philanthrocapitalism. And build self-sufficient villages where they do not have to count on charity once they're built, nor do they have to count on their government, which they can't count on. And so that's what we do. We build villages that combine um, – typically the one we're building now is 50 houses, a community center, a school, church, a clinic, renewable food, clean drinking water, and some form of free enterprise that we leave behind so the villagers can be self-sufficient. And – proof is in the pudding man 28 villages later eight seven now 18 years later all 28 of those villages are thriving and 12,800 children that were eating dirt flavored with bouillon and lemon juice yes you heard me right they're eating mud flavored with bouillon and lemon juice now they have this self-sustaining existence and it's a model that i have been i've shared with I, we shared it with the clinton foundation when the clintons were in office or actually when they left office and started their foundation because they wonder how how is it that you can build a whole village? By the way, I'm building a whole village for, for less than $300,000 U.S., which is about what it costs for one house in Palm Beach County, the average price of a house in Palm Beach County. But that philanthrocapitalistic approach using free enterprise and capitalism, which, is, which really does solve poverty in the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, has given me – like. It, I, I could have retired or died back in you know the late '90s when I was so down, and it's given me this purpose to uh, you know this this spiritual highest calling. I, I sell I sell houses to the rich people who don't really need them. I take the proceeds like a modern day Robin Hood, and and I get to build villages in Haiti. I mean, what isn't that's that's the ideal ending to to my life. That, my legacy, Nick, won't be the running. It won't be the houses. It won't be my books. It will be. The, the generations of lives we've impacted in that poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. Wow. So just as you were doing that, I've just donated um, to the COVID-19 Haiti Relief um, Fund that you've got there as well. And for people who are listening to this, I'm going to encourage that you do the same. Um, and I, I assume the best place to do that is on your website, Frank, because that's where I've just done it. 
um, and we'll make sure that we um, we put that into the show notes and give people the opportunity to uh, to do that. For people who are listening in the um, in the audience here on Clubhouse, um, your website is frank-mckinney.com? Correct. Yeah, and then it's the Caring House Project, which you can find on the site. Let me give you a little – I'm going to give you a little um, – and that, when, when is this, this podcast going to air? Uh, I think we've got it scheduled. Uh, it's about three or four weeks from now. I need to check the um, the piece. But um, okay. we can time it if you've got something coming up so you can let me know I, about I, that. I want you to time it for after what I'm going to share right now. Because you, if you're in the room, you're going to hear something pretty exciting. Uh, and, and Matt Andrews is going to – I don't think he'll kill me. But Matt and I and a few others, including Nick, you're going to be brought into this soon. We are going to build a clubhouse Haiti house. We are going to we're going to do one day, one day in April. I'm not sure right today. We are going to drive people to one page. We're going to talk about philanthropic capitalism. We're going to have some heavy hitters in there. We've already got the page built. Uh, I think we're going to be able to build a whole village to be between you and me. I think I can do a whole village in a day. Uh, so if you want to wait, wait till you hear about that and donate on that day because we are then are going to take pictures of those of when we build this house or houses. I guarantee it'll be houses. Because uh, I can build one house in Haiti for 4,800 bucks. These are going to be called clubhouse houses, and and we're going to use this platform to build a whole village. And that's you heard a, it here first. That is amazing. <laughs> that is outstanding. So, well, listen, I will definitely let me know exactly the date and the timing, and uh, I'll make sure that I get that released around the same time. So we get about Please. twenty or so thousand people per uh, episode listening to it. So I think that'll be hopefully give it a nice injection of uh, of more people being aware of what you're doing, which is great. Thank you. Yep. Alrighty, well let's um let's wrap this up. You've been very generous with your time here. Um, I'm glad we got to cover everything. And now spending a bit more time with you, Frank, I can see how it all works. You know, to be to be honest, from the outside, and you know, I could sort of view it anyway. I think when we connected here on stage, and you were telling about you, your stories, the the different decisions you've made. I love that um, the thing you said about being able to take your children to school. How many days was that in a row? 1,652 times I walked my daughter to school from pre-K to eighth grade. We did not, she never sat in the back seat of a car for 10 years. <laughs> that so has we stuck, walked every day. That has stuck with me since I first heard you say that on stage because I've got two young girls and, and I made some choices earlier in my career where I wasn't around. So I really respect the fact mm. that, that you did that. So listen, um, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been great. As I said, we could ramble on forever, but uh, I just want to be respectful of your time. It's been great having you as a guest uh, on Scale Up Your Business. It's more than scaling up your business. It's scaling up your life. And when you listen to this podcast, it, 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 it has to be about success in the business of life not the success in the business of whatever business you're in. And, and that allows you to hop over happiness and land on joy. And, and that's kind of what we're all looking for. Amen, my brother. And you, you couldn't have said it better. I mean, people think they're getting one thing, but they get something very, very different, which is great. And there you have it, another episode of Scale Up Your Business. Thank you very much for listening. And if you haven't yet, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help the show become even better. And while you're there, make sure you hit that subscribe button to help you on your scale up journey. Now, perhaps you're thinking of growing and scaling your business. Perhaps now is the time. If that's you, then please check out suyb.global. That's where we have all of our programs, including the Growth Accelerator Partnership, the Maximize Value Partnership, all of our services, and of course, coaching and mentoring. Once again, be grateful, be brave, have faith, and show up. Until next time.